welcome to another episode of the APOG podcast. I'm the show's host and creator, Morgan Bechtel, and today we'll be finishing up our journey into contraceptives. In today's political climate, where reproductive rights are being questioned more and more, it's hard not to feel as if history is repeating itself. This is why it's more important than ever to know what options are available. In today's episode, we'll be covering the basics of the birth control patch, the rings, as well as various barrier methods and fertility awareness techniques. We'll discuss the effectiveness of these methods as well as the potential benefits and side effects of each. So sit back and relax as you learn all about contraception. We'll start today by talking about the birth control patches. There are several patches on the market at present, including the Zulane, Zafemi, and Torlia patch, which are all thin, flat, tan patches approximately 4.5 centimeters across that's placed either on the back, butt, abdomen, or upper arm and is replaced once every seven days. These patches contain the progestin norelgestrin or levonorgestrel as well as ethanol estradiol. After seven days, the patch is removed and a new patch is applied on a different area of the body. After three weeks, the patch is skipped for a week to allow for menses and then the cycle begins again. The effectiveness of the patch is about the same as an oral contraceptive pill, and it might be a better option for patients who struggle with daily pill taking. The patch has no long-term effects on fertility, and it resumes as soon as the patch is discontinued. The side effects and contraindications of the patch are also similar to oral contraceptive pills, with the exception that skin irritation may occur and there is a decreased risk of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. It's important to note that the patch is not recommended in persons whose weight is greater than 90 kilograms or 198 pounds, or if their BMI is greater than 30. Another option for contraception is an insertable plastic ring containing both progestins and estrogens. This ring is inserted into the vagina and sits around the cervix. There's two approved rings on the market, the original Nuva ring and a newer ring called the Anovera ring. Now, the Nuva ring is a thin ring of plastic which contains etanogestrel in addition to ethanol estradiol. The Nuva ring is kept in place for three weeks, then removed for a week to allow for menses, then replaced with a new ring. The Anovera ring is smaller, but a slightly thicker ring of plastic, which contains the progestin-derived suggesterone. The Anovera ring can be used in the same manner as the Nuva ring, with the exception that the same ring is good for an entire year, meaning that you don't have to use a new ring each month. Patients may express concerns that the ring might become dislodged and fall out. But this is a fairly rare occurrence, being found in only about 4% of patients. It was noted that it was more likely to occur when a patient was doing um, some sort of like valsalva maneuver. Some patients may express concerns of having the ring in during penetrative sex. So it's important to note that the patient can remove the device for up to three hours a day without losing its contraceptive efficacy. Now, the effectiveness of the ring, its impact on fertility, side effects, and contraindications are similar to the combo oral contraceptive pills. The benefit of the ring is that it is a one-size-fits-all, and it does not need to be fit by a gynecologist. The monthly change also means that compliance might be better, as there's no daily pill to remember to take. Next, we're going to talk about the non-hormonal options of contraception, starting with diaphragm. The diaphragm is one of the oldest known forms of birth control. Invented in 1842, this device is meant to be used on an as-needed basis during intercourse. A diaphragm consists of a dome-shaped rubber cup with a flexible rim that fits over the cervix and upper part of the vagina, acting as a barrier to sperm. 
There are three main types of diaphragms. We have the traditional latex diaphragm that come in various sizes. They are fitted by a healthcare practitioner, so it's comfortable for the patient and their partner. After childbirth or any significant weight change, conventional diaphragms need to be refitted. Besides the traditional latex diaphragms, we have single size diaphragms, which are made of silicone and considered to be a one size fits most. It's softer and more durable than the traditional latex diaphragms. And lastly, we have the wide seal diaphragm that has a wider outer lip of soft silicone. This creates a greater surface area of contact between the rim and the vaginal wall and may provide a better seal. In addition to providing a barrier, spermicide is also applied to the diaphragm before insertion in order to provide additional protection against conception. After the first coital act, additional spermicide should be inserted into the vagina before each subsequent act. The diaphragm should remain in place for at least 68 hours, but not more than 24 hours after intercourse, after which it should be washed and reused. Now, the diaphragm has a failure rate of approximately 6% with perfect use, but on average, its failure rate is around 12%, which equates to roughly 1 in 8 to 9 people. Now, side effects of diaphragm use include vaginal irritation, discomfort with placement, and UTIs. Although the risk is very low, non-menstrual toxic shock syndrome is also a possibility. Now, contraindications to diaphragm use include allergy or sensitivity to the components, so, you know, think latex, silicone, spermicides, any sort of uterine prolapse, cystocele, rectocele, or any congenital abnormalities of the reproductive tract that would interfere with correct placement. Frequent UTIs are considered a contraindication, as well as risk of HIV infection acquisition, unless used with the condom. Since the spermicide used with diaphragms can be irritating and cause minor skin tears that results in increased risk of viral acquisition. Now, other contraindications include difficulty or discomfort with the insertion process and a history of toxic shock syndrome. Next, we'll talk about another barrier method, the cervical cap. The cervical cap is similar to a diaphragm, but it's smaller and more rigid. It comes in three sizes, small, medium, and large, and the size is chosen based on the patient's pregnancy history. A cervical cap does require a prescription from a healthcare professional, but it does not require a custom fitting. Like the diaphragm, the cervical cap works as a barrier between the cervix and the sperm, and a spermicidal cream or gel is used in conjunction with the cap. Now, the cap is inserted prior to intercourse, and it should remain in place for at least 6 hours after intercourse, but no more than 48 hours. With typical use, the cervical cap has a failure rate of approximately 8%, or 1 in 12 to 13 people. But rates are higher among Paris patients because obtaining a secure fit after childbirth is difficult to do. Like the diaphragm, side effects include vaginal irritation, discomfort with placement, and urinary tract infections. And contraindications include an allergy to latex, silicone, or spermicides. As we continue on with the various forms of barrier methods, our next stop is the condom. Known by many names, the wetsuit, the rubber, the jimmy, and even the nightcap, the first documented use of a condom was during the Bronze Age, at around 3000 BC, by King Minos of Crete. Yes, the King Minos of Iliad fame. Now, condoms have been made from a variety of materials, from sheep and goat bladders, intestine, linen, silk, and even tortoiseshell. Today, condoms are made out of three main materials. Latex, synthetic materials like pilospirene, polyurethane, or silicone rubber, or lamb intestine. It's important to note that the lamb intestine is impenetrable to sperm, but not to many of the viruses that can cause serious infections. Think HIV. 
There are two distinct condom designs, the internal and the external. The internal condom is a pouch with an inner and outer ring. The inner ring is inserted into the vagina and the outer ring remains outside and covers the perineum. The internal condom should be placed no more than eight hours before intercourse. The penis should be carefully guided through the external ring to make sure that the ejaculate is collected in the pouch. When the penis is removed after intercourse, care must be taken to avoid spilling the condom contents. The larger ring should be twisted to prevent semen from spilling. Now, the external condom is a single narrow tube that is unrolled down the shaft of the penis. It's important to pinch the tip shut so there's approximately a one centimeter space for ejaculate to collect. It's always important to check the condom package for expiration date and signs of wear and tears. A new condom should always be used for each coital act. Internal and external condoms vary in effectiveness with internal condoms at an approximate 5% failure rate with perfect use and 21% with typical use. External condoms have an approximate 2% failure rate with perfect use and 18% with typical use. Besides possible allergies to condom materials, there are very few side effects with this form of contraception. Some general disadvantages include difficulty with application and removal, internal condoms, the outer ring being visible outside the vagina, and of course, condoms can make noise during intercourse. There's also limited accessibility of internal condoms when compared to external condoms. One benefit of condoms is that in addition to protecting against pregnancy and many STIs, condoms also protect against human papillomavirus or HPV, thus reducing the risk of precancerous cervical lesions. The last barrier method we're gonna talk about is the vaginal sponge. Having been around for nearly as long as the condom, the vaginal sponge was often soaked in what were thought to be spermicidal agents, typically olive oil and quinine, then inserted into the vagina. As time went on, safer, more effective spermicidal agents were used. Today, vaginal sponges are widely available and contain the spermicidal agent nonoxinal 9. The sponge can be inserted up to 24 hours before intercourse, and it should be left in place for at least 6 hours after intercourse. Maximum wear time should not exceed more than 30 hours. Like the condom, a prescription is not necessary to obtain this contraceptive. The vaginal sponge is not as effective as other contraceptive methods, with a failure rate of approximately 12% in nulliparous patients and 24% for parous patients. Similar to the diaphragm, side effects include vaginal irritation, vaginal dryness, and very rarely non-menstrual toxic shock syndrome. It's important to note that if the sponge breaks into pieces during removal, you need to seek care immediately as the retained products can lead to sepsis. I want to dive a little bit into spermicides. So spermicides, of course, can be used on their own to prevent pregnancy. They work by damaging sperm cell membranes, thus preventing fertilization. Spermicides should be placed in the vagina at least 10 to 30 minutes, but no more than one hour before sexual intercourse, and reapplied before each coital act. Spermicides alone are not very effective at preventing pregnancy, with an approximately 19% failure rate with perfect use and 28% with typical inconsistent use. Now, the withdrawal method involves the penis being removed from the vagina prior to ejaculation. This is the least effective method of contraception. For every 100 people who use the withdrawal method perfectly, 4% will get pregnant. But pulling out can be difficult to do perfectly, so realistically, about 22 out of 100 people who use the withdrawal method every year get pregnant. And that averages to almost 1 in 5. The last form of contraception we'll talk about is fertility awareness. This involves the menstruating person to be aware of their menstrual cycle and avoid intercourse on days which they're most likely to get pregnant. 
Although the ovum can be fertilized for only about 12 hours after ovulation, sperm can fertilize an ovum for up to five days after intercourse. As a result, intercourse almost five days before ovulation can result in pregnancy. Thus, fertility awareness-based methods require abstinence from intercourse starting five days before ovulation. The chance of pregnancy during these days leading up to and following ovulation are as follows. Five days before ovulation, it's around 4%. The two days preceding ovulation, it's anywhere from 25 to 28%. During that 24-hour window after ovulation, we're about 8 to 10%, and for the remainder of the cycle, we're at 0%. Now, these probabilities are related to the limited viable lifespan of sperm inside the woman's reproductive tract, which is no more than five days, and the even more limited viable lifespan of the ovum following ovulation. That's less than 24 hours. As a result, the fertile window is no more than six days per cycle. Now, there are several methods by which a person can monitor their fertility. There's the standard calendar method, which uses knowledge that ovulation occurs about 14 days before the onset of menses. Thus, the interval of abstinence during the menstrual cycle is determined by subtracting 18 days from the shortest of the previous 12 cycles and 11 days from the longest. For example, if cycles vary between 26 and 29 days, abstinence is required from days 8 through 18 of each cycle. The greater variance in cycle length, the longer abstinence is required. Sometimes cycle beads, which is this string of color-coded beads that represent the days of the menstrual cycle, can be used to help keep track of a person's fertile days. The next method is the two-day or ovulation or mucus method. This relies on the concept that cervical mucus may be absent for a few days after menses. After the mucus reappears, it tends to be cloudy, thick, and inelastic. Shortly before ovulation, the amount of mucus increases and becomes thinner, clearer, and more elastic than usual. It resembles raw egg whites and stretches between the fingers. Intercourse is avoided completely during menses because the mucus cannot be checked. It's permitted during the days when the mucus is completely absent, but during these days, intercourse is restricted to every other day so that semen is not confused with mucus. Now, intercourse is avoided from the time that mucus first appears after menses until about four days after the amount peaks. Intercourse is permitted without restriction from four days after the amount of mucus peaks until menses begins. The characteristics of cervical secretions during the menstrual cycle are affected by serum estradiol and progesterone concentrations. Before ovulation, estradiol produced by the developing follicles stimulates the production of cervical secretions that facilitates the passage of sperm through the cervix and leads to functional maturation of sperm so that fertilization of the ovum is possible. Following ovulation, progesterone produced by the corpus luteum causes an abrupt change in secretions, which then inhibits sperm migration and its maturation. It's important to note that a change in cervical mucus indicates ovulation more accurately than body temperature. The next method of fertility awareness is called the symptothermal method, which combines the measurement of basal body temperature, which tends to increase after ovulation, cervical mucus assessment, and the standard days method. Basal body temperature is approximately 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 0.3 degrees Celsius higher in the luteal phase than in the follicular phase. The temperature rise begins one to two days after the surge in luteinizing hormone and the rise in progesterone concentration and persists for at least 10 days. Now, temperature elevation identifies ovulation retrospectively and thus signifies the end, rather than the onset, 
of the fertile period. It's important to note that basal body temperature alone is no longer recommended as a form of fertility awareness, as body temperature can be affected by many, many different factors, including things like viral infections. Intercourse is avoided from the first day requiring abstinence, according to the standard days method, until about three days after the amount of cervical mucus decreases and temperature increases. The symptothermal method has a lower pregnancy rate with perfect use than the two-day method, based on cervical mucus, or the standard days method, with or without the cycle beads. Lastly, we have the lactational amenorrhea method, which relies on the natural postpartum infertility that occurs when a woman is breastfeeding exclusively or pretty much almost exclusively and the menses has yet to resume. The infant suckling inhibits the release of hormones that are necessary to stimulate ovulation. Without ovulation, pregnancy cannot occur. This method can be as much as 98% effective if the following criteria are met. The infant's less than six months, breastfeeding is the primary source of infant feeding, Breastfeeding is done at least every four hours during the day and every six hours at night, and menses has not returned. During my research, I found a couple of helpful apps which could be used to help fertility tracking. They include things like the menstrual trackers app, the eye cycle beads, something called Sympto, Lily Pro, Lady Cycle, and lastly, there were two other apps, one called the Dynamic Optimal Timing, or the DOT app, and the Natural Cycle app. Well, that wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on contraception methods. I know it was a doozy and I barely scratched the surface. The story behind contraception is an interesting one and a very relevant one given the day and age we're living in. If maintaining access to affordable contraception is something you support, I highly encourage you to reach out to your local and state representatives and let them know where you stand on reproductive rights. There is a sample letter on APOG's website, again that's www.paobgyn.org, that you can use to write your representative. All of us at APOG encourage our listeners to stand up and speak out for reproductive justice. Tune in next time where I'll be sitting down with Shantae Rodriguez to discuss human trafficking and how we can best care for survivors of sexual assault. As always, you can find all of the resources for this episode in the show notes, as well as links to our episodes on APOG's website. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things we're doing. And lastly, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference to our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. As always, that is the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe. Tell somebody you love them and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.